John chapter 6, we begin in verse 47. This is Christ speaking now. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I give, and and the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh, and drinketh my blood, dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back, and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you was a devil. He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to verse 60 from the portion we just read. 
Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? The Gospel of John draws attention to the Jewish Passover more than the other Gospels. The Passover, you may recall, was that Jewish feast that commemorated their deliverance from Egypt back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. The night the last great plague was unleashed upon Egypt, the slaying of the firstborn, the Israelites had been instructed to take a lamb and slay it and apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts. And when the death angel then came through in an act of judgment, slaying the firstborn in every house, when he came to the house of the Israelites, he passed over the doors that were marked with the blood. And what a glorious picture of Jesus Christ, who is oftentimes, and I'm sure you know this, he has referred to as the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Behold, the Lamb that taketh away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said when he pointed his audience to Christ. Now, one way of analyzing the Gospel of John is by dividing it into three Passover seasons that are all covered in that gospel. The first one occurs very early in the gospel, chapter 2, verse 13, which tells us, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was on that occasion, you may recall, that Christ chased the money changers out of the temple, the next Passover is mentioned in the chapter from which we've just read, in John 6 and verse 4, and we didn't read that, but I'll give it to you now. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And it's in this setting of the Passover drawing nigh that Christ speaks of himself as being the bread of life. It's also in this setting of the slaying of the Passover lamb and the feast that accompanied the slaying of that lamb, that Christ makes reference to the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. And then there's a third Passover. This one's mentioned in chapter 13 and verse 1. The time leading up to this Passover includes the upper room discourse that's given to us in John chapters 14 through 16. So we read in chapter 13 of John's Gospel in verse 1, and I love this text. This is something you do well to uh, take to heart, even commit to memory, where we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What a wonderful statement. He loved them unto the end. The end being, of course, Calvary's cross. He loved us all the way to and through Calvary's cross. He loved us unto the very end of his life when he laid his life down. 
to make atonement for our sins. Now it's the second of these three Passovers that I want to focus on for a few moments this morning. I find it interesting to note in John chapter 6 that the Jews would go so far as to acknowledge Christ to be a prophet. Look with me, if you would, at verse 14. Verse 14 in John chapter 6. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world making reference to a prophet foretold in the book of Deuteronomy that would come into the world. So they recognize Christ uh, to have the authority and the greatness of a prophet. And because of his miracle of feeding 5,000, they were also willing to make him their king. So in verse 15 in chapter 6, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So they recognize a fit candidate, if you will, for a king. They recognized uh, the greatness and the authority of a prophet because of the miracle that he performed. But when it came to his priestly ministry. And you may recall from our shorter catechism question and answers that Christ occupies three offices as our mediator. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. When it came to his priestly ministry, which was and is the foundation for his prophetic ministry, and his office as king, when it came in connection with his priestly ministry to the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood and their identification with him in those things, they completely missed his purpose and the meaning of his words. Didn't understand his priestly ministry. None of them did, not his own disciples even. They applied a literal meaning to something that Christ intended to be understood spiritually. It's a common error, one that can be found even right up to this present day. His saying, taken literally, was, to use the words of our text, a hard saying. And because it was a hard saying... We go on to read how there were many that were offended by this saying. I've always found it rather fascinating to note that when you go to the beginning of John's Gospel and you trace what is a very perceptible increase in our Savior's ministry, it seems that more and more people are coming to him more and more people are gaining an interest in him. Or so it seems. He has, uh, if you will, a growing church, so to speak. And then you come to chapter 6. And verse 66. And it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Oh, this growing ministry all of a sudden reaches a plateau And then a great decrease takes place. People are leaving him. 
To the fleshly eye, what happened on this occasion would appear to be a serious setback in the ministry of Christ. But what I want to do this morning is to look at this hard saying that offended many and caused a number of people to no longer follow Jesus. As hard as this saying may be, Christ himself makes it very plain that the things he says about his body and blood are essential. They're essential to eternal life. And they're essential to our walk with the Lord. And you could say they're essential to a right understanding of what we're doing this morning around the Lord's table. This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Well, consider with me, first of all, that this saying is hard, not only because they couldn't comprehend it, but you could say that this saying is hard when you consider the way Christ would execute it. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's the essence of this hard saying. From verses 53 through verses 56, Christ says it three times. Verse 53, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Verse 54, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Three times, okay, this Hard saying is given out by our Lord. And you see at once uh, how important a saying this is when we're talking about life and eternal life and dwelling in Christ and Christ dwelling in us. Now, the Jews thought that Christ was calling for some kind of, of crude form of cannibalism. Eat his flesh, drink his blood, if you can't get beyond the surface of the words, then it would seem to be quite, quite repugnant, wouldn't it? The key to the passage is found, however, in verse 63. Note what Christ says there. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In other words, Christ must be understood as speaking spiritually. There is a spiritual exercise, you see, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We're about to engage in that spiritual exercise in a couple of moments this morning. Because they didn't have spiritual understanding, the saying became a hard saying for the Jews, those who gained what you could call, I suppose, a temporal interest in Christ, were willing to follow him all the way up until they heard this hard saying. But if it was hard to their understanding, consider how hard it would be for Christ himself to execute. He who did no sin would give his body to be broken on account of sin. He who knew no sin would allow his blood to be shed on account of sin. 
There's a verse in 1 Peter that captures this idea of difficulty, hardness, if you will, of salvation. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 18 where we read, And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous scarcely be saved. Now the word translated scarcely in that verse is easy to misunderstand. On the surface of it, the verse might appear to say, if the righteous barely be saved, or in other words, if the righteous just barely squeeze through the door to heaven, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? And you know, there is a truth conveyed in that notion that there are some that will be barely saved. Paul makes reference to those that are saved, yet so as by fire. They've gained an interest in Christ, but have done little for Christ. When the time of accountability comes, most of what they've done goes up in smoke before the Lord. And they escape condemnation the way a man escapes a house on fire. All that he has burns up, but the man himself escapes. Oh, we do well to let the terror of that day move us to overcome apathy and indifference and to be busy about the Lord's service. So there are those, arguably, that will barely be saved, so to speak. That's not Peter's meaning, however, in 1 Peter 4 and verse 18. The word scarcely is a word that could literally be translated with difficulty so that you could read it if the righteous with difficulty be saved. That's the thing we must ever keep in mind. Salvation comes to you and to me fully and freely, but salvation posed a challenge to God It came, you might say, with difficulty to God. It was with difficulty that salvation was accomplished. It posed a challenge to his wisdom. Designing a way for sinners to be saved without compromising his glorious name. It presented a challenge to Christ to leave heaven's glory in order to take to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. What about this for a hard saying in terms of trying to comprehend it? A familiar passage, and yet arguably a hard saying when you try to plumb the depths of it. I have in mind now Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Speaking of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." It's in connection with the humbling of himself and becoming obedient unto the death of the cross that he would give his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And I suggest to you that was done with difficulty. That's a hard saying in terms of Christ actually executing it. 
What about this for a hard saying in terms of what Christ bore? Matthew 27 and verse 26, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That same passage in Matthew's gospel, you might say, is filled with hard sayings in terms of what was required of Christ. So in verse 28 in Matthew 27, we read, And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And in verse 29, And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And in verse 30, And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And verse 31, And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. In all of these hard things, Christ submitted himself voluntarily. He was not simply a passive recipient of hard things that were beyond his control, you see. He knew before he left heaven's glory what awaited him. He came for the express purpose of accomplishing these hard things. So we read in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What? The soul of Christ is troubled? It was troubled because of the difficulty of that hour. It was troubled because soon not only would he be scourged and mocked and humiliated and crucified, but his father would turn from him. Oh, it was a hard hour that Christ faced, but listen to what he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Oh, it was a hard hour, but Christ came for that very purpose. Those who heard him speak of eating his body and drinking his blood thought that they heard hard things. The truly hard things were the things that Christ accomplished through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And because of what he accomplished, because of his willingness to leave heaven's glory, to come into this world and be obedient to the death of the cross, you and I remember what he accomplished and we remember the price. This is how we eat the body and drink the blood. By reflecting on the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood and all that that means and all that that accomplished, that's what Christ has in view. Well, consider with me next and finally just two points today. Christ saying is hard when it comes to the reception of it. Not only hard in terms of what he had to execute, but this saying is hard when it comes to the reception of it, receiving it. This is a hard saying, <clears throat> many of his temporal disciples said. And then they add, who can hear it? Who indeed? To those who hadn't gained spiritual understanding... The saying seemed crude. 
Ironic, isn't it, that those today who lack spiritual understanding seek to keep it a crude statement. So the Church of Rome takes the view that Christ's words here are literally true. When you eat the bread, you are eating the literal and physical body of Christ. When you partake of the cup, you are literally drinking the blood of Christ. Through the hocus-pocus action of the priest, the bread becomes the literal body of Christ, and the cup becomes the literal blood of Christ. And it's for this reason that our Protestant confessions brand the Catholic Mass as a form of blasphemy. They disgrace the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. They deny what was accomplished by the once and for all breaking of his body and shedding of his blood. But again, the question with regard to Christ's hard saying, who can hear it? And the answer is that the natural man can't hear it. It's repugnant to him. Besides what he takes to be the grotesqueness of the saying, it smacks hard at his pride that he would even need such a thing as a blood atonement. Underlying the reception of this hard saying, you see, is the presupposition that apart from Christ's broken body and shed blood, we're lost. Apart from one who is willing to intervene on our behalf, we're most certainly doomed to everlasting destruction. The natural man is unwilling to acknowledge himself to be in such condition. His blindness and his pride won't allow it. He may humble himself enough to acknowledge that he's perhaps slightly less than perfect, but he won't acknowledge himself to be hell-bound or hell-deserving until a force more powerful than his stubbornness and his pride overcomes him to subdue his pride and his rebellion. This is why we read in verse 65 of the chapter, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given him of my father. Does this statement rule out people coming to Christ who are willing to come? Oh, not at all. The word of Christ is clear. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The sad truth is, however, that men will not come. The natural man will not come. They'll not come because they're repulsed by the idea of blood atonement. They will not come because they don't think they really need Christ. One of the things that makes Christ saying hard is the notion that he's trampling underfoot the autonomy of man. And indeed he is. So we read in verse 66, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The passage seems to indicate that this many... Included most. It seems that the vast majority of those who had followed Christ for a time had had enough. They could bear it no longer. 
These hard sayings struck hard at their pride and their autonomy. It seemed that they were all on the brink of leaving him, so much so that we read in verse 67, Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Everybody else is going away. Are you going to go away too? Just as the many came initially because of his rising tide of popularity, now the popular thing seemed to be to leave him. Will ye also go away, he wants to know, of the twelve? Peter, as was often the case, speaking for them all, answered Christ and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Peter and the twelve would stay with Christ. They would stay when others were departing. Their staying meant, of course, that they were willing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They detected, at least in some measure, the spiritual import of Christ's words to the point where they saw in his words, words of eternal life. Unless they should glory in themselves as if uh, they were anything as of themselves, notice what Christ goes on to say to them in verse 70, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you was a devil? Oh, the statement clearly reveals the sovereignty of God in salvation. It shows that salvation is ultimately of God, all of God, all of Christ, and not of us. We're tempted, I think, at times to harbor the notion that we were wise enough to come to Christ, while others were not wise enough. When Paul writes in Romans 3 and verse 11 that there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, we're tempted to think that we can take exception to that rule. After all, you did come to Christ, didn't you? You responded to the invitation, didn't you? A time did come when you sought the Lord to the saving of your soul, didn't there? You can look back and trace the time when the gospel made sense to you. You gained understanding that you were on the broad road leading to destruction, and Christ was able and willing to save you. And so based on that understanding, you responded to the invitation, and then you came to Christ. <clears throat> now, I believe that the sovereignty of God in salvation is a great mystery. It's unmistakably plain. God has revealed his sovereignty in his word in such a way that it cannot be denied. Listen to what Christ says in verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And again, verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. The thing that must be ever borne in mind when we read these statements that pertain to God's sovereignty and we read the accounts that speak of election and predestination is that God has given us this revelation of himself for a reason. 
And the reason is not that we may shut the door upon anybody that is willing to come to Christ. I love the balance of verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, the invitation is open to all. And for all we know, the whole world could be elected by God. The reason that these statements are given to us in Scripture is that we may know that we have nothing to glory in of ourselves. We glory in Christ alone. We glory in the Father for designing so great salvation. We glory in Christ for purchasing so great salvation. And we glory in the Holy Spirit for so powerfully applying salvation to our proud and obstinate hearts. What is the mark, then, of one who has been chosen of God? Can you tell whether or not you're among the elect? Well, the test is not terribly difficult for determining such a thing. Listen again to Christ's words, verse 54. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. You stand in need of a blood atonement for the saving of your soul. <coughs> Christ's body must be broken and his blood must be shed in order for you to be saved. Does such a saying offend you? Or do you respond to it by saying, Lord, I need thee. I cannot make it to heaven without thee. Most willingly do I acknowledge that I'm helpless and hopeless and condemned if left to myself. I place my hope for heaven, therefore, in your broken body and in your shed blood. That's the confession you make, you know, when you partake of these elements this morning. That's the blessing of the communion table. It affords us opportunity to say to the Lord, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. I pledge my faith in Christ's atoning death. I proclaim before God and before God's people gathered here that my hope is in the blood with the hymn writer I testify, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And as I pledge my faith in Christ, far from being offended by a hard saying pertaining to his body and blood, I say instead, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so we do not seek to probe any deeper into God's mysteries than Scripture allows. We simply see in the breaking of his body, in the shedding of his blood, a testimony of his love. And we respond to his love by loving him in return. This is the opportunity that this spiritual feast affords us here in worship, bowed before God with grateful and humble hearts. We pledge our faith in him and we confess our love to him. 
and we draw from his love the motivation to love him in return, will you turn back from him then, the way the multitudes did, or will you see in his hard sayings your hope for heaven and everlasting life? To those that base their hope for heaven and his broken body and his shed blood, he welcomes you to spiritually this morning eat his flesh and drink his blood. Keeping in mind his words are spirit and his words are life. Let's close then in prayer then before we distribute the elements. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee that by thy grace we don't regard the sayings of Christ in this chapter to be hard sayings in terms of being able to understand them. We do find them to be hard in terms of God executing them. And, that, and yet Jesus Christ did execute these hard sayings by giving his body to be broken and his blood to be, to be shed. We bless thee and we thank thee, Lord Jesus, for thy willingness to do this in order to accomplish our salvation. O oh, Lord, may we partake of these elements, therefore, this morning, knowing what they represent, knowing and believing in what they point us to, which is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. May we therefore partake of them by faith, and may we indeed enter into wonderful and intimate communion with thee, even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.